Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. And today we're going to look at the leadership chances of Boris Johnson, but we're going to do it through a slightly different prism to the normal kind of speculation about his chances of becoming the next Prime Minister in the next 10 minutes, next 12 months or whatever. I've been recording another series of talks for the BBC, these unscripted talks that I do on various themes. I've done a couple of series already, one on modern prime ministers from Harold Wilson to David Cameron. I think maybe Theresa May got in there as well, although that one inevitably had an unfinished quality to it. I did then a series on turning points in modern politics, the SDP, the financial crash and various others, the Iraq war. And Starting next week, I've recorded a series of nine on prime ministers we never had. And of the three I've done so far, this became for me the most interesting because quite a few of the figures in that list are, I think objectively, whether you come from the left or the right, in some respects bigger figures than some of those who did become prime minister. In many cases, more charisma, more weighty figures, deeper figures than some of those who made it to number 10. But for various reasons, none of them got the top job, although in all cases, they were seen at certain points in their careers as the likely next prime minister or the probable next prime minister. And they never got it. The reasons for that has kind of guided me as to what will happen to Boris Johnson. But before I explain that and reach a conclusion about Boris Johnson's leadership ambitions and what will happen to them, here are the uh, the people that we or I speak about in this uh, television series starting next week. Uh, I I think they're opening with Michael Heseltine. So Heseltine is one obvious prime minister we never had, someone who was ambitious, openly so in some respects, for the top job and never got it. We do Dennis Healy, Ken Clark. There's one which I enjoyed doing. uh, It was the idea of one of the producers to do the Miliband brothers as one, Ed Miliband and David Miliband. Ed Miliband was the favourite to become Prime Minister after the 2015 election, and David Miliband, for a time, there was a curious frenzy around him as a possible prime ministerial alternative to Gordon Brown. So they they take up one programme together, two very different political figures, but with inevitable similarities as two brothers and an extraordinary story. Who else? Uh, Neil Kinnock is there. It's easy to forget that uh, certainly in the late 1980s and in the lead up to the 1992 election, he was well ahead of the Conservatives and was seen as the likely next Prime Minister. Tony Benn is in there because for a time in the late 70s and early 80s, many Labour figures hoped or feared that he would emerge as the sort of left-wing alternative to Thatcherism. Certainly newspapers feared it as well. And two prime ministers, uh, Jim Callaghan and Harold Wilson, told Tony Benn, look, you will be a Labour prime minister if you do this and that and the other. But it never happened, even though, as Jeremy Corbyn would be the first to admit, Tony Benn is a much bigger political figure 
than Jeremy Corbyn was or is, or certainly was when he became Labour leader in that extraordinary leadership contest in 2015. There are a series of others, including, of course, Rab Butler, who was the first big political figure to get the title the Prime Minister we never had. There were three occasions when Rab Butler thought it likely, and on one, almost certain that he would be the next Prime Minister, and it didn't happen. This was in a different era when Tory MPs, let alone party members, had no say in direct say in who became their next leader. But again, an interesting study. So why did these figures, these in some cases mighty figures, never become prime minister when they and the rest of us at times worked on the assumption that they would? There are a whole range of different reasons, but one interesting one is that those who show transparent ambition, who can't hide the fact that they ache to be Prime Minister, rarely get it. There is the exception, as some people have said to me, of Gordon Brown. He is a really rare exception of a leader-in-waiting who became a leader. Most who are seen as a leader-in-waiting don't because the pressure of the perception is enough in itself to undo them. And the transparent ambition determines the way they are seen on all levels. So, for example, Michael Heseltine, when he resigned from the cabinet in January 1986, was and remains a big figure on many different levels. He is interesting about policy, the role of the state, its relationship with markets, about Europe. He was a brilliant communicator. But after that resignation, he was seen largely through the prism of his desire to succeed Margaret Thatcher. And any interview, Hesseltine could be talking about his opposition to the poll tax, which was considered and now wholly regarded as the right way to go. It was always so, Mr Heseltine, are you considering a challenge to Margaret Thatcher? And he would famously say, I can't envisage the circumstances where I would challenge the Prime Minister until unenvisaged circumstances arose. But the prism in some ways undermined him. He was, I think, a substantial figure and would have been a perhaps transformative leader of the Conservative Party if he had won in the autumn of 1990 when John Major beat Heseltine and others. But the perception of him as self-serving in his ambition undone him to some extent. To a lesser extent, but it had applied, the same can be said of two weighty, actually three weighty chancellors who I reflect on in the series. Roy Jenkins in the late 60s uh, was a formidable chancellor, having been a remarkable Home Secretary. But that was the time when feverish speculation against the Prime Minister Harold Wilson erupted, with Jenkins being seen as a scheming possible successor. And it undermined him. People then saw Jenkins in a different light, not just solely as this substantial cabinet minister, but as someone working towards his own personal ambition. Uh, Ken Clark had it in the final days of the John Major government. Clark was seen as the probable successor 
And in fact, although he was loyal to John Major, and reliably so, even John Major at times worried that Clark was manoeuvring against him when he wasn't. And the same with Dennis Healy to some extent. Dennis Healy suffered from this label for a long time, a leader-in-waiting, a prime minister-in-waiting, and therefore a lot of his moves were seen in that prism of ambition, which is unattractive compared with people who are just treated as policy makers or principled or figures with conviction, and it undermined them. Another factor that undermines prime ministers we never had is some of them attract a kind of feverish hysteria. Michael Portillo is one of those. In the mid-1990s, it's easy to forget now that every move Portillo made was seen in the context of his leadership ambitions and accompanied by a feverish hysteria. The Conservative Party, it is true now and it was then, need heroes. They needed them really since Margaret Thatcher, many of whom idolised Margaret Thatcher, and they ache for heroes who they can get excited about. And Portillo was one of those. His 40th birthday party wasn't just anywhere. Uh, It was at Ali Pali in North London. It was a huge, glittering, over-the-top event. When there was that wacky leadership contest triggered by John Major when he stood down as leader of the Conservative Party but remained as Prime Minister, Portillo's fans put in a phone bank ready for him to make his move and he never made it. There was too much overwrought excitement around Portillo, so much so that the ambitious Portillo lost all ambition and he never got the job. The same could be said of Tony Benn in a very different way. There was a great deal of hysteria around him from the late 70s to the early 1980s, almost too much. Corbyn is fortunate that the hysteria that accompanies him happened once he'd got the job. But when things become overwrought, the potential leader is seen in a different light, again as self-serving and ambitious. A problem for Ruth Davidson would be if she leapt down to Westminster from the Edinburgh Parliament, got a seat in a by-election, she would metamorphosize from this attractive, ebullient figure to someone acting almost manically to become Prime Minister. And that in itself, I think, would undermine her fatally. And then there is another constant factor. Quite a few of the Prime Ministers we never had were divisive figures. Their preeminence was partly based on the fact that they represented one side of a divide that was tormenting their party. Ken Clark, who has said that he regarded losing leadership contests as his hobby, lost them all, not because he was unpopular with the electorate, far from it. When polls were taken of the most popular possible Tory leader, Clark topped them every time. But his views on Europe meant that he was emphatically on one side of an argument and couldn't therefore heal the wounds of a divided party and therefore he was doomed at every leadership contest. There are other factors, famously those who make the challenge rarely acquire the crown, as in Heseltine's case. 
context and timing, both of which are not wholly in the hands of aspirant leaders stroke prime ministers, are also absolutely pivotal. John Major would not have won the leadership contest in 1990 if it had been held a couple of years earlier, for example, and probably a couple of years later. So all these factors come into play, of which I think the most significant is the degree of scrutiny and hysteria around an aspirant leader or prime minister. It's very interesting that those who become leaders or prime ministers do so in a period of relative calm in relation to them and the way they are perceived. Harold Wilson and Tony Blair both became leaders of their parties after the sudden death of leaders who many assumed would be around for a long time. Hugh Gateskill died suddenly, Wilson got it. John Smith died suddenly, Blair got it. So there wasn't this ferocious, loud, noisy focus on either of them in advance to them seizing the crown. And Theresa May, no one realised quite what was going to happen in the way that it did until within days she became Prime Minister. And John Major too. Uh, there was no talk of Thatcher going in the summer of 1990 and therefore no forensic obsession about Major. She went with that sort of Shakespearean drama and he surfaced relatively calmly as he was just settling in to his new job at the Treasury. That's usually how Prime Ministers acquire the crown, not accompanied by the hysteria that Portillo generated, that Tony Benn generated, that at different points, and less so but still to some extent, Roy Jenkins generated in the late 60s and so on. Now, apply this to Boris Johnson. And all the factors that stopped those figures from becoming Prime Minister apply to him. Most vividly of all the transparent ambition and therefore the prism through which he is seen. Every move he makes is seen as a pitch towards getting the top job. If there are news stories about his private life, it is seen as an attempt to clear the deck for a leadership bid. If he writes provocatively on Europe, comparing May's Chequers deal to suicide bombers or whatever misjudged metaphor he deploys, it is seen as part of a way of attracting attention to win the leadership. Everything he does, having a cup of tea at his house and being photographed, a leadership bid, there is acknowledgement even amongst his supporters that he wants to be Prime Minister. And in my view, that in itself makes it much less likely that he will become Prime Minister on the basis of what doomed the other Prime Ministers we never had. Johnson is accompanied by such hysteria in the media amongst his followers and detractors that, again, I think it undermines him rather than helps him. The build-up to the Conservative Party conference where he is to give a big speech is hysterical. The media coverage is already saying this will dominate the coverage. It will top 
whatever Theresa May's trying to do. I wonder. There will be hysteria in the build-up, hysteria at the meeting where he speaks, but has he got anything very substantial to say? The hysteria in itself is in danger of making his pitch, when it comes, seem less capable of reaching such elevated heights of anticipation. And that has applied to other prime ministers we never had. And then, in terms of the divide that has tormented the Tory party to the point where it is almost unleadable, Europe, Johnson has become absolutely on one side of the argument. He is calling for a hardline Brexit without explaining in any detail what that would mean or how it could be achieved. Now, the lack of detail, I think, makes him vulnerable because aspirant prime ministers will be subjected to the most intense scrutiny. And if you can't answer questions about the policy that has come to define you, you are in trouble. But also it's hard to see how he could heal the wounds, given what ministers have said in public about some of Johnson's articles, Alan Duncan saying it was the sort of lowest form of political uh, speech he's heard for decades, etc. This is not the moves of a figure who becomes a prime minister at a moment of heightened division. There are other factors too, I think. Basically, Johnson's position on Brexit is inauthentic. If you look back at the first article he wrote coming out in favour of Brexit, famously he wrote it in the Telegraph to Cameron's despair, that article preceded days of agony about which way he was going to go and was in itself studied and punctuated with qualifications, including raising the possibility of another renegotiation in which Britain stayed in the EU. So this is not a figure who, when he thinks about these issues, is just hardline Brexit, you know, let's get out, let's get out, let's do it like Trump would do it. When he thinks, he is more considered. But he has decided that fate his own positioning in the referendum, his interest in the impact of Trump in the United States means that he must be a Trump-like figure in the United Kingdom. And that is not him. We know it's not because he has written in a more nuanced way at times about Brexit, immigration, freedom of movement, and indeed issues like public spending. He's now put out a daft proposition that there'll be no tax rises if he's in charge. When he was mayor, in a couple of speeches he made at the Tory conference, he was almost Keynesian in putting the case for public spending in London because that helped the entire UK economy. When someone is not articulating what they really believe, they are seen through. Authenticity is absolute key to being a prime minister because of the level of scrutiny. Inauthenticity becomes obvious. Ed Miliband, and indeed I think David Miliband in a different way, were not wholly authentic figures, and Ed Miliband has admitted retrospectively he wished he had been truer to his more radical self. And in not being like that, in appearing at times like a, or trying to, like a sort of technocratic 
bank manager, the opposite to what he's really about as a sort of political thinker. He appeared inauthentic and moved towards his doom. So for all these reasons, I think uh, Boris Johnson will not be the next Prime Minister. I do it with this one qualification. The Prime Ministers we never had functioned in the era before Trump and Brexit and all the other destabilising eruptions going on around the entire Western world. And maybe things have so changed that none of those factors apply anymore. It will be a test of the degree to which British politics has become wholly wacky and wild what happens to Boris Johnson. So that's an, an important qualification. But I suspect some of the factors that I've described will apply to him and that he will not be Britain's next Prime Minister. Let's see. In terms of the series, it's really interesting doing talks for half an hour to camera without a script. I'll kind of walk into the studio at uh, the BBC studio at Millbank at Westminster and start. And the only thing is, I have to finish. The only thing I can see is a clock moving towards naught. And I have to finish at naught because if I don't, we have to do the whole thing again. It's all recorded in one take. So I walk in and have a sort of beginning in mind and an end in mind and then kind of move towards it like going for a walk with interesting political scenery in all directions. And I find it a very good way of talking about politics and big political figures because it feels more natural and conversational. And uh, people remind me that the, that great historian, legendary historian, A.J.P. Taylor, did this in the 60s and 70s. And you can see some of them on YouTube. And of, of course, he did it brilliantly. And in that era, he could get on peak time. I think he got on peak time BBC One at times and ITV. That wouldn't happen now, even though I think there is a great interest in these kind of very simple forms of communication rather than these overpackaged films that you kind of tend to get these days. I think there's a real appetite for it, which is why more and more people are going to public events again, festivals and all the rest of it, uh, one-man shows, you name it. People want that kind of simple but deep forms of communication. And, and you can sort of conjure up great political dramas with that, actually. You don't need a Hollywood cast and Hollywood budget to convey drama. Anyway, that's what I think. So there we are, Boris Johnson and the Prime Ministers we never had. Thanks so much for listening. Do download and subscribe and um, see you next week. Thank you.